the Israeli security uh, officials at the airport have outsourced to these right-wing Zionist, unreliable, lying, troll uh, websites the job of sorting who's a security risk and who isn't. It's clearer that we were targeted because of the company we keep rather than the work that we do. The academic boycott in particular, I think, is very powerful because I think the movement emerged at a time when academics were beginning to get slightly fed up of the censorship. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman, and you're listening to the Electronic Intifada podcast. Israel continues to racially profile, detain, interrogate, deny entry to, and deport people of Palestinian origin— Arabs and Muslims, Jewish activists, Quakers, students, human rights advocates, UN officials, and supporters of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions campaign. Over the weekend, that denial of entry list was extended to Vincent Warren, the executive director of the Center for Constitutional Rights, and Catherine Frankie, chair of CCR's board and a professor of law, gender, and sexuality studies at Columbia University. Warren and Frankie were traveling as part of a fact-finding delegation to witness the human rights situation in Palestine. The delegation brings together mostly black and brown civil and human rights leaders working on domestic U.S. justice issues, according to CCR. They were detained on April 29th for 14 hours and interrogated at Ben Gurion Airport, then denied entry into Israel and deported back to New York. Warren and Frankie were questioned about their political associations with human rights groups that have been critical of Israel's record, CCR says. As Israeli agents detained, interrogated, and then deported Warren and Frankie on Sunday, Israeli occupation forces killed three Palestinians in Gaza, including a child, in two separate incidents. Since the Great March of Return protests launched on March 30th, at least 50 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza's eastern perimeter. Five of those killed were children and two were journalists. The vast majority were participating in protests when they were fatally injured by Israeli sharpshooters. Today is May 2nd, and as of press time, no Israelis have been killed or injured as a result of the protests. The protesters are demanding an end to Israel's siege of Gaza and the right of return for Palestinian refugees expelled and excluded from lands now in Israel because they are not Jewish. We're now joined by Vince Warren and Catherine Frankie from New York City. Vince and Catherine, thank you so much for being with us today on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It's our pleasure. So, Vince, let's start with you. Before we get into what happened with you and Catherine being detained and deported, uh, talk about this delegation, what you're hoping to do in Palestine, especially as the executive director of the Center for Constitutional Rights. I was really excited about this delegation. The first time I had been to the region was in January, January 2016. And as part of that, I led a delegation of lawyers and legal academics to meet with lawyers and uh, legal academics um, in Israel and Palestine who had been challenging those laws. And as building on that, what uh, became clear was that there are many more voices um, in the United States that we should be connecting to this struggle. And so what was exciting about this delegation, it was a delegation of mostly black and brown civil and human rights leaders, some of whom were lawyers, some of whom are activists, some of whom work very deeply in community, and a very broad and diverse one. We had uh, uh, people from uh, Puerto Rico, we had um, Native American folks who had been working on Dakota Access Pipeline, Black Lives Matter activists working in the South, people working from Ferguson, 
people connected to the Women's March. It was really a, a tremendous set of people that most of whom had never been to the region before um, that were about to experience, uh, you know, what I found to be one of the most devastating uh, weeks of my life the first time that I went and met with all of the freedom fighters and human rights fighters on the ground there. So you were both at first cleared at the airport and then snatched back into interrogation rooms by Israeli agents. Uh, Catherine, can you explain what happened to you and, and what kind of questions they began asking you? Well, after we were held um, in detention for about an hour and a half or so, uh, maybe longer, you lose track of time when you're in this kind of space. Um, I was brought into an interrogation room and was asked some pretty routine questions at first about how often had I been to Israel? When was the first time? What was the purpose of my trip? Um, I answered all those questions. The purpose of the trip was was tourism. Um, and I was coming as part of a group. Uh, he then, uh, the, the interrogation took a turn, a very hostile turn, I would say. And um, the man asked, said to me, declared, you're here to promote BDS in Palestine, aren't you? And I said, no, I'm not. And, it, and inside I was sort of chuckling because you don't promote BDS in Palestine. That's right. not what. That's not where the work is done. But in any event, this delegation had nothing to do with BDS. There, we were not boycotting Israel. We were coming there to meet with people, uh, and and witness what uh, the kinds of work and uh, they were doing in the the lives of Palestinians and the Arab minority within Israel. Um, so I truthfully answered that question, and he said, "You're lying." He he pointed his finger at me and he yelled at me. You're lying. You're a big liar. I know you're here. You're uh, to promote BDS in Palestine, and you're a leader of the BDS movement. And I said, I am not. Um, I'm sorry you think that, but I am not. And at that point, he took his cell phone where he had Googled me and turned it around towards me and showed what I know is one of these right-wing Zionist troll websites. And he said, see, you're lying to me. I have proof. You're here to promote BDS in Palestine. And I said, I'm sorry you're using that as a source. Um, but that is not um, uh, that is not what I'm here to do. We are here to see the holy sites, um, uh, to to meet with people here in Israel, um, uh, and to tour as tourists, not to promote a political project. And at that point, there was no way for me to redeem myself. Um, really, the point of the interrogation, from his perspective, was to get me to admit that I was there um, as part of a boycott project. Um, and uh, he also tried to tie me to JVP and say, you work for JVP, don't you? And I said, no, I don't. I don't work for JVP. Um, and it, then the accusations that I was lying continued. Um, it was a very aggressive uh, interrogation. It lasted about an hour, um, where really all he did is tell me that I was a big liar. Uh, it, actually, he insulted me in other ways. I, my ears were backed up from the flight, and I was having trouble hearing him, and I asked him if he could speak up. And he said, well, your hearing would improve if I threw you in prison, wouldn't it? Um, and I said to him, I really think that's, that's unnecessary. I'm trying to answer your questions truthfully. And I just got off a very long flight and I'm tired and having trouble hearing. So, um, at some point he took the little piece of paper that is our visa, the visa for getting into Israel, crumpled it with his hands and threw it on the floor. And he said, I'm deporting you and banning you for life from returning to Israel. And he made me take my pic, uh, he took a picture of me and then did a, um, fingerprint uh, a scan of both of my index fingers and kicked me out of the room. And then you were put into a, a detention room for the remaining 13 hours or so? You know, we, I, we did, Vince and I had somewhat different uh, experiences. At one point we were separated, but I say for the next several hours we were together. 
Um, and we were moved around the airport. We were moved into another holding area in that passport control hall. Then they moved. Then they took us through a kind of mystery door into the backside of the airport through a dirty hallway and upstairs and down another hallway that had broken chairs and tables in it. And then into a kind of a crummy conference room sort of setting where there were probably 15 other people all of whom were speaking Russian or Ukrainian. I, I can't tell the difference because I don't speak either of those languages. I think we were the only English-speaking people there. And they actually had the TV blaring, Israeli TV, but a Russian station um, with a loop of news and then soap operas, which the Russian-speaking people were enjoying, but we were not. Um, and then at one, another point, I was moved somewhere else to check to do to scan my baggage. And when I came back, Vince was being taken away. Um, uh, and I didn't see him again until we were on the plane. When they took me away, um, <laughs> it, was, um, it, was, it was an interesting thing. So what, one of the things I've learned in my work working in jails and different places like that, it's not always the uniformed people that you need to worry about. It's the folks in the T-shirts or the suits. And so the guy that came in was very big, burly. You could tell he was ex-military. Um, and he was calling out a bunch of names, including mine. And so one of the questions that you have in, th in these detention areas is, uh, should I take my bags when you're asking me to go someplace or should I leave them? And, you know, you can't always tell what's going to happen. But <clears throat> usually if they say you should leave them, that means that you're coming back to the place possibly that they're taking you from. This time he said you should bring your bags. And so I had a sense that I was going uh, to detention. Now, as it turns out, Catherine um, had received, um, in addition to her um, fingerprinting and such, she'd received uh, at least some formal notification of uh, she was not being uh, allowed in the country. I did not receive uh, any of that at all. And um, in my interrogation, which had happened um, um, in, in, in the secure area, um, I was asked basically to say that Catherine was a leader of the BDS movement. Um, and when I said, of course she's not, he basically called me a liar and didn't listen to anything else that I had to say. So um, the, the man that was taking me to the detention center had um, a stack of, um, of passports and a stack of papers. My paper was on the top, and I could see that it said something about denial of entry. So I said to him, I need a copy of that paper because I've not been told why I've been denied entry into the country. And he said in very typical jailer fashion, he says, hey, do you want to stay here? You can stay here. I said, no, I don't want to stay here. I just want a copy of my paper. He says, it sounds like you want to stay here. So you can either come with me or you could stay. Um, I had asked for the paper uh, four or five times, and it was clear to me that um, I was not going to be getting it from this person. So I went with him. He put uh, me and uh, along with me, there were um, two women and two men. Um, the men were Russian and Ukrainian in the back of a van. We then were in the van, which had uh, bars on it and uh, different things like that, um, for a number of minutes to another building where we went into the detention center. Uh, the women were in a cell that were upstairs. The men were in the cell that was downstairs. In my particular cell, there were about eight bunks. Um, there were a number of men in there, all of whom were Russian uh, or Ukrainian, um, most of whom I don't think knew each other. And um, I sat there for a number of hours until uh, I was finally um, brought to the, back to the airport to catch my flight. An interesting thing about the flights, though, that I've learned since then has been initially um, there was a discussion there that we were booked on a Turkish air flight. 
um, that rather than um, United flight, we had flown United there and we had arranged to catch the United flight that evening. Um, so I had, there was a fair amount of convincing to tell the guards that do not put me on the Turkish air flight because that's not where I'm going. But when I got to the airport, I looked at the, um, at the departures schedule and there was our flight at 1110 and there was a Turkish air flight, but it was going to Istanbul. And what I've learned subsequently is that for people who have flown to Israel and then are um, deported um, in, in that context, they usually get deported in the same route that they came. And that very often I've heard from a number of people that they, Israeli uh, military or Israeli um, uh, in, in intelligence or immigration uh, speaks to the local intelligence person and you can be questioned or brutalized or beaten all over again. So at some level, um, being able to advocate for being on a direct flight back to the U.S. might have saved uh, me some additional, certainly humiliation at best. Uh, and badgering at, at, at best, and even being uh, brutalized at worst. That's the voice of Vince Warren. Uh, also with us is Catherine Frankie. Um, you know, you're, you're both obviously involved in work at the Center for Constitutional Rights to advocate for human rights. Um, and, and part of your work also is, is advocating for activists and lawyers who do um, activism on Palestinian human rights issues. Um, do you think that CCR's work triggered the Israeli apparatus to come after you after initially letting you through to baggage claim? Is there any indication that you two who are involved with CCR were targeted because of the work that CCR is involved in? From my perspective, it's not clear um, that it was CCR as such. Um, I think uh, it's clearer that we were... Um, targeted because of the company we, we keep rather than the work that we do and their characterizations of the company that we keep. keep. Um, I challenged um, the person who was interrogating me uh, to point to something on the internet that would justify under um, the in Israeli laws of, um, of admission why I shouldn't be admitted as a tourist and he couldn't do it at all. Uh, so that leads me to, to suggest that it was actually less about the work and it was more about the relationships, which is a tremendous problem and um, for a variety of reasons. But I think it also speaks to perhaps how um, the Israeli government is beginning to expand its notion of who are problematic actors uh, from people that may have done something problematic, at least for the respect, from the perspective of Israel, to people that are connected to or that are friends with or they're traveling with. Um, folks in that in that arena, and that's it's always a troubling question um, when a government decides to broaden and loosen its uh, requirements because it makes it impossible to figure out whether you can get in, and it makes it impossible uh, to fight um, how you can uh, why why the government is doing the wrong thing. Yeah, I, th I think my experience also um, made it clear that um, that the Israeli security. Uh, officials at the airport have outsourced to these right-wing Zionist, unreliable, lying, troll uh, websites the job of sorting who's a security risk and who isn't. If I were Israeli, I would worry about that um, because that's pretty shoddy work on their part um, to take this kind of ideological perspective on security. Um, but I also think the fact that they were so obsessed with whether I was a leader of the BDS movement and whether I have work in some way with JVP says to me that these political movements have actually been very successful, that the Israeli government is that worried about JVP 
and about BDS. And it sends a signal in a way that they're incredibly vulnerable or they perceive themselves to be so vulnerable that with people like us showing up to just witness and testify to what we see, that somehow the Israeli government or Israeli society will crumble. So I do think we have reached or we're witnessing a kind of tipping point in the kind of tactics that the Israeli government will use in order to seal off um, their own policies from critique, um, but also a tipping point in the effectiveness of a tactic like BDS or other ways in which the human rights record of Israel is being called out in the international community. Catherine, were you able to um, catch any of the names of these websites that the officer held up to you on a phone? Um, uh, I wasn't, it was just on his phone. There were a couple of them. Canary Mission is the one that um, likes me the most, <laughs> I'm most popular on. Um, AMCHA is another, A-M-C-H-A is another. They list uh, uh, me there. But, you know, to be honest, I'd say two-thirds of the arts and sciences faculty at Columbia University is on the Canary Mission website. Um, there are also a lot of students from Columbia that are on that site. And um, the use of those sites by the Israeli security or immigration officials raises a very important issue of, of academic freedom as well um, that, uh, that will be banned simply by association with any of the organizations that they think are so dangerous um, means that our students can't go to Israel and work with other students or faculty there. It means our faculty can't travel. Um, uh, it, it, it creates a real problem for us uh, in the U.S., but I also think it's a real problem for, uh, for Israeli um, academics that they can't collaborate with people like myself. I have colleagues there who I would, would like to be working with, but I can't. And actually, that leads me to my next question. Um, Catherine, you mentioned on Democracy Now! this morning that Lee Bollinger, the president of Columbia University, was leaving the airport as you were being detained. Uh, Columbia is one of the many higher institutions around the U.S. that have ties to Israeli institutions, either through research grants or collaborations. Um, and Columbia, uh, as you said, is planning on opening a global center in Tel Aviv, a center that Palestinian students at Columbia or students in the occupied West Bank or Gaza Strip won't be able to visit or take part in research at because they won't be let into Israel. And now that, uh, that, that'll go for you too, as you mentioned, and, and your colleagues uh, who dare to speak out against Israeli policies or advocate for Palestinian rights. Uh, and actually, on this podcast, in the next segment here, we'll be speaking with a professor at UC Davis who wrote a book on the need for an academic boycott to, among other things, be able to address this kind of discrimination through these partnerships between U.S. and Israeli institutions. What can you say about the way these travel restrictions affect your students and colleagues? Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, the travel restrictions are hugely um, uh, prohibitive of cross-cultural uh, international collaborations. Um, we have many Israeli students here at Columbia who are here for a year or for a shorter visit or to get their undergraduate or, or graduate degrees. Um, we can't get Palestinian students into the U.S. because the Israelis won't give them a permit to exit the West Bank, um, uh, Gaza, or East Jerusalem. Um, so my, my primary concern is with their capacities to travel, um, and my secondary concern is with our ability to go see them. Um, but the, the most important thing is, I think, for Palestinian students and, and faculty to be able to get out of the West Bank 
um, and collaborate on whatever kinds of projects. It could be literature, it could be poetry, it could be film, it could be human rights, but you know, the range of things that, that we're all working on um, are undermined by, um, by these travel restrictions. You know, you often hear crit a critique of BDS as the, uh, uh, on the grounds that it somehow impedes academic freedom, that it censors certain um, voices well, actually, these travel restrictions are the are a much more effective way for the Israeli government to um, uh, insulate Israelis from an international dialogue about a range of things, and also to sequester Palestinians uh, in in the case of Gaza in an open air prison, um, but in the West Bank in a context where it's very difficult to collaborate with scholars internationally. Vince, will being denied entry by the Israeli state mean the end of your work to advocate on behalf of Palestinian human rights? Um, what is, what's the next step for you? Under no circumstance is my advocacy going to stop um, because of this. And I would also want to point out that if, and we're seeing parallels here in the United States, as Catherine was mentioning, um, academics are at risk, uh, human rights advocates and lawyers are at risk, journalists at risk. And if you think about um, controlling the message by denying entry to people that are journalists, that are academics and human rights advocates, you're denying access to the, pe the very people who are going to ask the questions that need to be asked and unearth the things that need to be unearthed in order for things to be able to change. And so at some level, um, by targeting us and uh, the cohort, and by now there are hundreds. We, Catherine and I have been on Twitter and people are like, welcome to the club, uh, people that have been denied. <laughs> Um, but it's a, it's a very important and influential club. And one of our goals now has to, to ensure that folks like us, uh, folks that come after us, um, journalists in particular, are able to go into that country and to be able to meet with the people that they need to make. If the questions don't get asked, we never know the answers. And then we're only stuck with a state narrative. And that doesn't work in the context of Israel, and it certainly doesn't work in the context of the United States. And Catherine, same question to you. Oh, this will not stop my work one bit. I'm, first of all, I supervise dissertations of a number of uh, Palestinian uh, graduate students. I'll continue to do that. Um, uh, we'll continue to fight to get back in to Israel. I mean, the thing here is that it, not only does the Israeli government control who has the capacity to visit Israel, but they also have the ability to control who visits Palestine. Um, whether it's the West Bank, East Jerusalem, or Gaza. Um, the Palestinians have no control over their, their ability to welcome visitors, tourists, uh, human rights defenders, or, uh, or anybody. Um, so we'll continue to work from, from New York on uh, a challenge to this ban, both in our case, but more broadly in the case of all the people who are uh, subject to the Israeli ban. Um, and as uh, I know your listeners are very familiar with, um, there are all sorts of ways in which in the U.S. Um, uh, people who are advocating for the rights of Palestinians or are critics of the state of Israel um, suffer a range of forms of discrimination or punishment for that political position or that political activism. And so we're, CCR and others are working to, um, uh, uh, to protect the speech and political advocacy rights of um, uh, Palestine's friends in the U.S., if I can say. 
Well, we're going to leave it right there. That's the voice of Catherine Frankie. She's a professor at Columbia University and on the board of the Center for Constitutional Rights. And Vince Warren, you are the executive director of CCR. And for our listeners who want to follow the rest of the delegation as they witness Israel's human rights abuses across Palestine, you can search on Twitter under hashtag Justice Delegation. There are some really moving photos and reflections that delegation members are posting. Vince and Catherine, thank you so much again for being with us on the podcast. Thank you, Nora. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Nora. Be well. Thanks. And coming up next, an in-depth interview with Sunaina Mera, author of the book Boycott, The Academy and Justice for Palestine. Stay tuned. Do you ever miss back home? Prepare for takeoff, touchdown, Ben Gurion. Strict search, make sure nobody enter a bombs. Blue white flag for this birthright Torah more. Never mention three villages that the airport is on. Recent history buried, but it speaks through the sand. All Jews law return. I don't seem to understand. A land without a people for people without a land. But I see a man standing with a key and a deed in his hand. Museum of the Holocaust, walking outside in the distance, all ghosts throwing a Molotov. Houses burn with kerosene, mass graves couldn't bear the scene. It wasn't a pogrom, it was the rooms of their Yassin. Shopping at the Kenyon Malha, built it on the back of the town and Malha. Wishing we could call its name, appalled by the change. And now a marvel of chains is all that remains. My evil misses people, not places. Has you seen the town from names of Arabic, the evil of places? The policies of evil are racist, the evil and heinous. فوت على دورها ولاقي سنين اسامي شوارعها هرتل تاهل بالصلاح الدين وخان الهلو صار مر خراب المدمنين سطات دمج تغطي جرح اللي بسين الدم لود لود كمان مشروع اللي يسمر الهن وهي مش الاولى ولا الاخيره ما احنا احنا البحر وهي السفينه بتجدف باتجاه شرابي صارها ويمينها وهيك الهولي لان بتبطل هلان Birthright towards a crew and them confuse them into 
people moving in Claim it's only names and words but denying the root of them Power been abusing it, I pass never excusing them 60 years since 48 and 40 since Jerusalem My boy Shaddy wanted to visit us so badly He lied he's diabetic to see it for 5 seconds 194 rule the courts in the case Mom you can't disconnect the people from the importance of place My email misses people not places Has she seen the towns with names in Arabic the Hebrew replaces I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman, and this is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm here in Oakland with scholar and author Sunaina Mera. She is a professor of Asian American Studies at UC Davis and is on the organizing collective for the U.S. Campaign for the Academic and Cultural Boycott of Israel, U.S. ACBI. She's also a founding member. Sunaina is also the author of the new book, Boycott, the Academy and Justice for Palestine, published by the University of California Press. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Sunaina, thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm thrilled. Thank you, Nora. So the book uh, is a well-researched, elegantly structured documentation of the academic boycott as part of, of the larger boycott, divestment and sanctions campaign called by Palestinian civil society. Uh, you zero in on the boycott movement within U.S. academia, how it began, its role in challenging the dominant Israel-centered narrative, and how scholars are fighting against what you call the archive of repression that we can get into later, um, which is the incessant, unrelenting backlash by those who wish to keep the dominant Zionist narrative dominant. Um, Let's begin by having you lay out what the academic boycott is in relation to the broader BDS campaign and how it's helping to steadily shift that narrative. Sure, yeah. So the academic boycott was called for by Palestinian intellectuals and scholars in 2004. So a year before the larger call for BDS was issued from Palestine. And it calls on um, the international community to boycott Israeli academic institutions um, until Israel complies with the three principles of BDS. And as with the BDS movement at large, um, those principles are ending the occupation and colonization of Arab lands, um, occupied in 1967, respecting the rights of Palestinian citizens of Israel to full equality and respecting the right of return of refugees. And I think these are significant because, you know, it really has been decades since these very basic human rights principles were even discussed in the U.S. university. And so the academic boycott movement was, you know, a lot, was an opportunity for you U.S. academics to end the complicity um, of the U.S. university with um, Israel um, until it complies with these basic principles of human rights. And I just want to add that it's really important to note that this was meant to be a boycott of Israeli institutions, so not of individual Israeli academics or Jewish Israeli scholars or Jewish American scholars, um, as, you know, the opponents of the boycott have sometimes alleged. Uh, you write about the ways in which Israel is presented in mainstream academia and how even presenting the Palestinian narrative is instantly seen as controversial. Um, how did this position on Israel become so mainstreamed in the university and really the only acceptable position to have? That's a very good point. That was actually, It's actually normative. It has been normative for many years. The only acceptable and kind of legitimate and civil position, if you will, is to actually support Israel and to refrain from any criticism of the Israeli state. And I think, you know, that status quo has been maintained the same way that the status quo in general discourse in the U.S. has been maintained, you know, due on the one hand to the power of the Zionist lobby. So, you know, the university is actually very susceptible to interventions by off-campus pro-Israel groups. And so I think by now, you know, there's this whole, you know, archive we have of documentation of the ways in which, you know, Zionist organizations have pressured university administrators 
to you know fire or censor you know academics um, who are doing work on their campuses that might be deemed critical of Israel to discipline students. Um, so I think it's the force of what the International Jewish um, Anti-Zionist Network, IJAN, calls the Zionist Backlash Network, you know, this web of organizations that constantly intervenes in academic freedom. That's one thing. On the other side, I think, is the um, vulnerability of U.S. academics to censure and defamation. And so, you know, academics as a class, I think, think are very vulnerable or feel they're very vulnerable to any kind of public criticism or defamation. And because I think, you know, on this particular issue in the larger sphere, you know, in the U.S., there also is not a lot of sympathy to an honest um, account of Palestine-Israel. It means academics really have tended to toe the line. So when I entered the academy, by the way, you know, about 15 years ago and I started teaching, you know, I, I remember people saying, you know, don't touch the P word, don't utter the word Palestine in your classroom. Um, and so I think that, you know, as the U.S. university has also become increasingly reliant on adjunct labor and tenure track positions are really difficult to get. Um, and tenure is hard, you know, to attain. Um, I think that this makes, you know, this kind of censorship and lockdown of Palestine, Israel, a kind of baton that people can wield over U.S. academics because they feel insecure academically. Mm-hmm. Uh I really appreciated reading about how you analyzed the propaganda war to protect Israel's image, both by the Israeli government itself, but also by its civilian front here in the U.S. and abroad. Um, Stephen Saleta, the, the author, academic, and uh, contributor to the Electronic Intifada, who is the notorious subject of a campaign by Israel-aligned forces to oust him from academia because of his outspoken criticism of Israel and Zionism. Uh, Steve says, and you quote him in your book, um, that groups such as the Anti-Defamation League have used the language of liberal humanism and tolerance, civil rights and anti-racism to promote and consolidate that support for Israel as a prerequisite of responsible multicultural citizenship, which is nowhere more evident than in the academy. Can you talk about how Israel and its supporters have, have really weaponized this language and how the academic boycott works to challenge it? Right. I think that's a very important point. And, you know, Stephen, unfortunately, knows too well how that has been weaponized and used to kind of really deepen the situation of academic insecurity. But I think the point that he makes in that quote um, in the book is actually really important because what he was sort of trying to point out is that, you know, it's actually support for Israel, a foreign state, not the U.S. state, by the way, that has actually become a core element of responsible multicultural citizenship in the United States. And so if you are critical of Israel, you're deemed anti-Semitic, therefore you are racist, and therefore you're not a good multicultural citizen. And so on college campuses where the discourse of multiculturalism is so prevalent, I think the ways in which supporters of Israel, I like the way you you know sort of pointed out that it's a civilian front, you know, of Israel because, you know, they get funding from the Israeli government. Um, the ways in which supporters of Israel have actually managed to consolidate um, that um, embargo on crit- criticism of Israel is by making criticism of Israel um, you know, outside the pale of, you know, proper university behavior and protocols. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there has been legislation that Title um, 
six legislation um, that has actually made, you know, criticism of Israel anti-Semitic um, in college campuses. And so, you know, they've used lawfare on the one hand um, to try to basically, you know, penalize universities that are deemed to somehow foster, you know, the so-called anti-Semitic critique of Israel. Um, that hasn't worked. But I think what has worked is actually a kind of cultural you know, hegemony in which, you know, criticism of Israel is just not permissible. So it's what I talked about earlier. It's people telling other people or whispering to other people, just don't do that event, just don't bring that speaker. Um, And so I think it's that kind of, you know, um, sort of just cultural understanding that this is something that one should just not engage in because, as you said, it's considered too controversial that has made that the norm. And then I think on the other hand, I just want to also note that we also do know that the U.S. is a special ally of Israel. So this support is also coming from the state. And I think that that is also very powerful that in other issues, one can be openly critical of China or, you know, Sudan or, you know, um, other states without necessarily worrying about the extent of, you know, punitive backlash. And how does the boycott campaign address that? Right. I mean, and I think that was the second part of your question, which is really key. So I think the way in which the boycott has challenged um, that lockdown is by, you know, creating awareness and discussion about Palestine and Israel. And I think because it is a tool, it's not exactly a movement that, you know, people can sort of deploy in different contexts. It's allowed students to organize divestment campaigns and to mobilize student bodies to actually, you know, confront what's really happening in Palestine. The academic boycott in particular, I think, is very powerful because I think the movement emerged at a time when academics were beginning to get slightly fed up of the censorship. You know, I mean, academics are intellectuals. Not all of them are Zionists, actually. And so I think people were just getting kind of fatigued, you know, that there was, you know, this constant silencing and, you know, harassment. And so I think the academic boycott allowed academic associations to take a position. And I think I I talk in the book a little bit about why I I think this is a war of position, because I think it's about shifting the parameters of cultural discourse and, you know, intellectual discourse. And so, you know, when the ASA, uh, the American Studies Association, endorsed an academic boycott resolution in 2013, it became clear that, you know, critical scholars were actually deeply concerned about Palestine. And so it really shattered the taboo on criticism of Israel by creating a space for discussion. We're here with Sunaina Mera. She is a professor at UC Davis and also the author of Boycott, The Academy and Justice for Palestine. Um, you mentioned the war of position, and, and that's um, a theory by the great late Italian communist uh, writer Antonio Gramsci, the war of position versus the war of maneuver. Um, can you talk a little bit about that more and how how you bring that in to talk about the context of BDS uh, as a tactic and a tool? Right. So in fact, one of the things that I say in the book is that, you know, the war of position is the struggle to challenge dominant cultural beliefs in contrast to the war of maneuver or open war and armed attack. And it's been key to understanding the successes of the boycott as a social movement that has challenged the hegemony of Israel. So as we've been, you know, discussing, that has been based on a set of popular beliefs that normalize the policies of Israel. Um, And so I think the ways in which I see the BDS movement reflecting on it, you know, over the last 10 years, now is that I think what it has been instrumental in is doing is through these kind of small incremental steps really challenging the normalization 
of this kind of Israeli exceptionalism in the U.S. And so I think in that regard, it's very important because, you know, Israel itself is very concerned with this war of position. So it's very apparent. I mean, they themselves talk about the fact that, you know, they're deeply worried about what they call delegitimization of Israel. And so there's a war of legitimacy. And I think it's very important to note in this regard, by the way, that this is not about the exist the existence of the Israeli state, okay? I mean, because there's all this kind of really melodramatic, you know, kind of allegations that BDS is out to destroy the state of Israel. But I think if we think about the three principles of BDS, it's fair to say that they point out the fundamental flaws in the notion of Israel as a self-professed democratic state that, you know, affords equality to its citizens. Um, and so in that regard, I think, you know, BDS has provided a discourse that now people can pick up and use to challenge that exceptionalization of Israel um, as being above critique. And so going back to the point about multiculturalism, I think one of the things that Israel has also tried to do through its brand Israel campaign is to kind of present the image of being multicultural and cool and gay friendly and I don't know women friendly and worker friendly and African friendly and all of these things which are not true and so I think again the BDS movement I think has provided you know kind of ordinary people with a language that they can use to basically you know um, you know rupture this kind of myth. Mm. As you said, and as you write, the the role of BDS is providing that language, um, and, and it's a textbook example of a social justice movement like any other, but has received a minuscule uh, fraction of the recognition and research. Um, and here's where the scholarship on BDS and the Palestinian liberation struggle overlaps with the fight against neoliberalism in the U.S. academy, increasing privatization, and the censorship of academic research or basic activism on campus, uh, as you said. Can you talk about the role of BDS? Um, a little bit more about how we can talk about BDS as, as a central uh, player, you know, in, in terms of uh, elevating uh, the Palestinian liberation struggle as, as just another social justice movement. Right. I mean, for many people, that's an oxymoron, like thinking about Palestinian liberation as being a social justice issue. And, you know, in your book, um, Nora, on the student movement and, you know, BDS activism, I think you noted, in fact, that, you know, BDS um, activism has become the kind of social justice, one of the fastest growing social justice movements on college campuses. And that really struck me because I think, you know, that really indicates the kind of 180 degree shift that has happened, you know, in many campuses where, you know, we see that people have completely reframed, you know, the issue of Palestinian rights or Palestinian liberation. And so I think in that regard, you know, to me, what is really kind of important is that on the one hand, you see masses of students taking up the cause, you know, of Palestine and getting engaged in BDS and bringing it into social justice activism. So there have been so many alliances that have been made between you know, Palestinian, you know, rights campaigns and Students for Justice in Palestine organizing and campaigns against the militarization of campuses, policing, police brutality, Black Lives Matter, also thinking about, you know, issues around, you know, walls and immigration um, and refugees, um, as well as, you know, you know, these questions around, you know, kind of um, apartheid and racial equality. Um, and academic freedom. And I think all of those have helped to transform BDS into a social justice issue. But, you know, fundamentally, it has to be acknowledged that, you know, BDS is a framework that was provided by Palestinians. And I think that, you know, there are two points to be noted. One is that, you know, it, it wasn't always like this, that I think in the United States, in the, in the 60s and the 70s, there was a moment when 
In fact, radical activists were in solidarity with the Palestinian liberation struggle and that leftists and anti-war activists actually were critical openly of Israel. And so I think in a way the BDS movement has allowed campus activism to return to that internationalist framework of third world solidarity, which has been, you know, diminished somewhat in the last decades. Um, or even when it emerged, you know, for example, you know, challenging the war in Iraq. I mean, there was just never a connection made to Palestine. Um, and then the second point, you know, I would say is that I do think that Israel's own excesses have fueled some of this, you know, outrage and sympathy with Palestinians. And because of social media, I mean, the work you do, for example, in Electronic Intifada and other outlets, it's harder for people not to know what's going on. Um, and so I think that for, you know, both of those reasons and other factors, probably, I think it has become more of a social justice Issues. So, you know, when I first started getting involved in the Palestine movement, you know, about like, you know, 17 or 18 years ago, I mean, you know, people used to call it PEP, you know, progressive except on Palestine. And I felt like Palestine activists were so marginalized and it was so frustrating and we felt so isolated and constantly under siege in the community, you know, not just on campuses. And, you know, I think that that shift so that I think we're getting to the point where I think we're almost there where to be progressive, you do have to start with Palestine, I think is pretty remarkable. Mm. Um, let's talk about the role of the academic associations, which you mentioned before, uh, in taking the boy boycott movement forward. Um, in your book, you write very personally about how you and other professors started going on self-funded fact-finding delegations to Palestine to see for themselves what was going on uh, and came back ready to take collective action, which ultimately resulted in an overwhelming approval of an academic boycott resolution, as you mentioned, uh, by the American Studies Association in 2013. This was after the Asian American Studies Association passed one earlier, but with less of a spotlight. Um, you note in your book that the passage of the ASA resolution made the front page of the New York Times, and quoting Edward Said, who said that Palestine was the last taboo in the U.S. public sphere, you say that the taboo had finally been broken. Um, talk about uh, the interviews that you did with professors in your book um, who went on these kinds of delegations and, and really what the, what the overall collective response was uh, gearing up for the ASA convention in 2013. Yeah, that's very important. You know, I mean, I think that the delegation that um, was organized by the U.S. campaign for the academic and cultural boycott of Israel, a U.S. ACBI, was really a key event in catalyzing that resolution. Um, the scholars who went to Palestine um, this was actually in January 2012, were all scholars in American studies. And actually, you know, even more significantly, they were all scholars doing critical race studies, feminist studies, queer studies, labor studies, um, and black studies. And so I think these were scholars who actually, you know, were sort of deeply invested in, um, you know, work related to social movements um, and had an international framework that they brought to them. And I think that it's significant also that it was a self-funded trip because they were not getting any financial support. It was not a holiday in Palestine, if you can take one. <laughs> but, you know, I think they were very committed to actually going and seeing for themselves the conditions on the ground. And so when they returned, they were so deeply moved. I think people are always transformed, you know, when they visit Palestine. It's always shocking, no matter how much you've read or seen, to actually witness 
what's happening with your own eyes. And so they decided that they wanted to propose a resolution to the ASA because it has taken positions on matters of public concern. And I think this is also important to note that this was not the first resolution, as the Zionists have argued, that the ASA ever bothered to endorse. They've actually taken positions on the war in Iraq and labor issues. And so we began a process, we, I mean, as in, you know, um, scholars in U.S. ACBI, of actually having open discussions and town hall meetings and circulating a public petition to educate people and to, you know, sort of um, get support for the boycott resolution. And it slowly began, you know, to get clear to us that, in fact, many people were really sympathetic and ready to support BDS. Um, And so, when the resolution was finally put to the association, you know, in November 2013, there was a town hall meeting that was organized by the association, not by U.S. ACPI, to give all members an opportunity to speak openly about their views. And the overwhelming majority stood up and said publicly that they supported the academic boycott. And these included not just, you know, tenured scholars and senior academics, but graduate students, adjunct lecturers. You know, they took this risk because they were so firmly committed to this. And, you know, I say this, Nora, because, you know, in the Zionist lawsuit against the ASA in response to the boycott, there are all these ludicrous allegations that this was a somehow secret, you know, conspiracy to take over the association for the purposes of boycott. And to the contrary, it was one of the most public grassroots campaigns that had ever taken place in the ASA, you know, um, in recent history. And so it was actually incredibly energizing. It brought together people. um, And I think after this town hall, you know, where you had Angela Davis and Stephen Salida and other speakers, you know, talking about Palestine. Um, There was an online ballot in which, again, you know, the overwhelming majority voted to support the boycott. Um, And this came after the American Studies, uh, Asian American Studies Association um, resolution, which was also, you know, one supported by critical ethnic studies scholars. I think we can also see the ways in which, you know, the academy, it's critical ethnic and race studies and feminist and queer studies scholars who are in the lead in trying to bring these issues into academic spaces. Talk a little bit more about the lawsuit. Um, Last year, an Israel lobby group and a group of Zionist academics filed a lawsuit against scholars who support Palestinian rights on top of the 2016 lawsuit against the American Studies Association itself um, in an effort to punish and discredit academics who challenged the dominant narrative on Israel in the U.S. Academy. Uh, Palestine Legal said at the time that it was, quote, a harassment campaign at the highest levels and that professors targeted by the lawsuit were subjected to death threats, rape threats, and other misogynistic and racist hate mail. You were named in this lawsuit as a member of U.S. ACBI. Um, can you talk about this as a jumping off point to to discuss the backlash and intimidation movement, what you call the archive of repression? Yeah, so, you know, speaking about the lawsuit, you know, I think it's really... Um, you know, it's it's a legally baseless lawsuit. Uh, most of the claims have already been thrown out um, by the court um, in this legal complaint against the ASA. And, you know, I think the bottom line is that, you know, the Zionists lost, you know, in this very public democratic vote. Um, and so the response has been to use these immense resources, as you said, um, in lawfare, you know, to harass and intimidate and defame scholars who, you know, dare to uh, organize in BDS campaigns. But I think there's something even deeper than that. And I think it's about this shift that we were talking about earlier that's happening. I think because they realize that they're losing 
you know, this war of position in the academy, and it's becoming now actually, you know, more of a progressive issue to support Palestine. I think partly the lawsuit was actually designed to silence other academic associations to try to send a message that if they dare to follow the example of the AAC, that this is what they would be subjected to, because it actually came a couple of years after the vote in the ASA. So logically, I mean, you know, the fact that they waited so long to file this lawsuit suggests there was something else at stake. And it was actually filed in the middle of the American Anthropological Association conference. And so we know that, you know, this was when the AAA was also um, voting on a boycott resolution. And, you know, there has been a domino effect. I mean, there have been a string of associations that have, you know, passed boycott resolutions after the ASA. It was sort of like, you know, the dam had been opened finally. um, And so people felt it was permissible and it was desirable. Um, And so I think it was designed to do that. And it's not working. You know, I mean, the truth is, in fact, I mean, there, there are conversations happening in so many fields by now. But I do think that you know, the other part of this, Nora, is as I talk about in the book, this archive of repression reveals that also what's at stake is a certain kind of racial and gender and sexual politics and class politics. And, you know, the Zionist backlash network is really, you know, heavily focused on targeting various progressive movements. I think we have to look at the confluence of anti-Zionist politics and, as you said, social justice politics. And so as increasingly we have, you know, for example, academics of color and ethnic studies scholars like myself taking the lead in BDS organizing, this is deeply threatening to the Zionist establishment in the U.S. and also Israel because it means that, you know, support of Israel is no longer a cool multicultural issue because, in fact, you know, masses of, you know, students of color and faculty of color are now standing in solidarity with Palestinians. And that is actually something that's very troubling. But I think it's very important because one of the things that has always concerned me as an activist of color and an ethnic studies scholar is that I think the racial politics of Zionism have actually often been very muddied in the U.S. It's been very difficult to be clear about it. And what the academic boycott in particular has allowed us to do is to see anti-Zionist politics is anti-racist politics. That to me is a really fundamental shift because it means it pulls out the rug from all these Zionist critics who allege that criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic and racist. So it becomes the opposite. It means that if you critique you know, settler colonization in Israel, you're actually anti-racist and BDS is an anti-racist movement. And that to me is like, you know, an incredibly important kind of intellectual or kind of, you know, um, sort of epistemological victory for BDS. Can you talk a little bit about the amount of self-censorship that you see in the academia world? And if you think that that is moving, uh, you know, budging in, in, in any direction? Yeah, you know, I think self-censorship was always a very important tool. You know, like I was saying earlier, you know, it was partly the pressures that academics have always been under that led them to staying away from this issue themselves without anybody knocking on their door and telling them to do so without getting a memo from their dean that they had to do so, right? It was this kind of tacit, unspoken kind of, you know, assumption. And I think that's why it was like, you know, hegemonic, you know, as we would say, it was just this kind of normative discourse that was so powerful. I think that's changing. I mean, I think that what we saw at the ASA town hall meeting about the boycott resolution is people were volunteering to speak publicly about their support, you know, for Palestine, despite the risk that they might have incurred. Now, I think that, you know, the self-censorship 
is not entirely gone away. Obviously, I think people are still very cautious. Um, and I think that the Zionist Backlash Network has also ratcheted up its tactics. So we see that there is more public blacklisting, right? And the blacklists have kind of, you know, proliferated. And we have various shadowy groups like Canary Mission that publish these online and threaten, you know, prospective employers, you know, on behalf of student activists. We have posters being put up on campuses with people's pictures. And so I think that that level of smearing and McCarthyism is designed to create self-censorship. So, you know, it's not that every administrator needs to write a letter to their faculty telling them, you know, not to support SJP. But I think that there is this culture of fear that has been created around this issue. And I think the only way through that is actually through public activism. Like, I think the only way to break that wall is, you know, to come out with a hammer and smash it. Because, I mean, the more you stand in the shadows, the more people want to, you know, be like, you know, kind of lurking in the dark. And so I think that's why the BDS movement was also so significant, because it meant that people could come out in the open. And we have senior scholars, leading, you know, intellectuals who are saying, I support Palestine. So it gives people courage that it's okay to do so. Maybe this is a good time to talk about the founding story of U.S. ACB. Um its origins, and really how it's evolving now, um, nine years almost after its inception. Yeah, you know, the founding story of U.S. Acme is also very much about coming out of the shadows as academics, because in fact, it was during the Gaza, the war in Gaza in 2008 and 2009, when, you know, you had this horrific massacre. I mean, I'm saying again, because, you know, we are currently going through a period in which, again, Israel is assaulting, you know, people on the border of Gaza on a weekly basis um, at the moment. But during that war in the winter of 2009, um, there was actually a group of us who were part of an, an academic Freedom Network um, in California that was concerned with censorship in Middle East studies, who felt that, you know, we needed to be able to respond. And, you know, Nora, the thing is, you know, when people say we don't know what to do, I mean, Palestinians had said in 2004 and 2005, this is what we need you to do. So in 2009, it had already been five years since that call for academic and cultural boycott had been issued. So we decided to respond and to actually form a national campaign that would actually mobilize people in support of the academic and cultural boycott. Because, you know, the call had been issued earlier and people had responded in a scattered way, but there wasn't actually a structure for getting people to endorse the boycott. So at the minimum, we wanted people, you know, to have a place where they could publicly endorse the academic and cultural boycott and then hopefully also do organizing. Um, but, you know, U.S. ACBE, um, has never had any, you know, grant funding or staff. We don't have an office, and it's a collective made up entirely of volunteers. So we're all, you know, people who are working um, in the academy or elsewhere, scholars and activists and artists. Um, and by now, we have people all over the country in every region, um, and we've also you know, always had the support of this incredible advisory board of like leading, you know, international activists and human rights leaders. Um, but I think, you know, the it's it's been hard work. Um, and there was actually a point at which um, a Zionist think tank, the Royal Institute, I think, said that if we had 500 endorsers, we would be a strategic threat to the state of Israel. That's so I guess, yes, I know. <laughs> 
that's all it takes. And it took us a while to get there, but we did become a strategic threat to the state of Israel. And I think that what is actually really kind of important about um, U.S. ACP is that it's a very diverse group. So in fact, you know, um, many of us are not, you know, Palestinian or Arab. We work in different fields. You know, we've been involved in other kinds of social justice activism. And the lawsuit that has recently been filed now explicitly targets U.S. ACP because I think there's a realization that somehow this motley group of professors managed to actually do something that, you know, the Israeli state, I think, never thought that an academic association in the United States would actually endorse the boycott of Israel. They kind of assumed that this was a bastion of, you know, pro-Israel thought. Um, and so I think it's been really significant. Having said that, it is a struggle, you know, to do what we do and I will say we recently launched a campaign to boycott study abroad in Israel programs on uh, March 30th on land day which was also the day that the great march of return was launched in Gaza on the border um, and I think this is a very significant campaign because it allows you know students and faculty and staff in their own campuses to pledge not to participate in study abroad in Israel programs um, because these programs are fundamentally whitewashing programs um, that provide, you know, kind of academic cover for Israel. They're very biased. They're usually based at Israeli universities that are extremely, you know, problematic and complicit um, with the state and the occupation. Um, and so I think this is, again, something that, you know, individual students and faculty can just go online to the U.S. ACPI website and endorse the pledge not to participate in any way as a student, as a teacher, as staff support um, in study abroad in Israel. What was it like for you going back over the history of U.S. ACPI and your own personal activism and the activism of, of others in your field uh, and writing this book? Um, it's short. It's 150 pages. Um, but somehow you managed to pack a lot of, of information and history and context in there. What was it like writing this book? You know, it was a really meaningful process for me. Um, and for me, of all the books that I've done, this one meant the most, in a sense, because it was an opportunity to think about my own personal and political involvement, as well as the involvement of other people. Um, and because it was the first book about the academic boycott movement, and one of the first, you know, academic monographs about BDS, I guess, it was a bit challenging when I was thinking about how to write it. Um, but you know, Nora, I'm an ethnographer by training, and so my, um, you know, inclination is generally to try to tell the story through, you know, other people's stories, you know, to try to actually kind of glean from people how they make meaning of events or issues. And so I decided that I wanted to interview, you know, my comrades in U.S. ACPI and other scholar activists um, to sort of get their perspective, because I think each one brings, you know, something really important to this issue, like putting together, you know, the pieces of the puzzle in a sense, because every people have different vantage points. Um, and so I decided that I would do interviews with other, um, you know, academic boycott activists, but also look to some of the documents um, about the academic boycott campaigns, as well as, you know, by now there's a lot of documentation online as well, you know, so reports by Palestine Legal or IGEN, as I mentioned, or reporting in Electronic Intifada or other outlets. Um, and for me, the process was challenging also because the series editors put a very short limit on the books, as you said, it was 150 pages because, you know, they wanted it to be a book that students would actually 
actually read. So it is, by the way, part of a series called American Studies Now, and it includes short books um, that can be read by undergraduates on like, you know, sort of flashpoints, you know, in our times. Um, and the fact that they included you know, BDS and academic boycott to me is really significant. Um, so I was so lucky to have, you know, the support of my editor. I feel like the series editors, Lisa Dugan and Curtis Maris, um, who were both part of the ASA's leadership, by the way, they were extremely supportive. Um, and so it was so refreshing to be able to write openly about this issue and to just make it a, a good, well-researched book. Um, and so I decided, you know, that I didn't want to give, you know, too much context for Palestine and Israel, but to really think about, you know, as you said, the boycott is a social justice movement. And since I do research on social movements, you know, to me, that was really exciting to think about what's the paradigm of the movement, what are the strategies and tactics, you know, what are the campaign approaches and locations, and then to think about it in relation to other boycott campaigns in the U.S. and also in Palestine. And if people want to learn more about your book or U.S. ACPI, where can they go? Sure. So, you know, the book is available through the University of California Press, and it's also a digital book, by the way. So I think there are links to getting the e-version. And for those who want to learn more about academic and cultural boycott campaign, they can go to www.usacpi.org. And I really urge people who are listening to this to do that. And if they haven't endorsed U.S. ACPI, they should try and do so. <laughs> Sunan Amara, the book again is Boycott, the Academy and Justice for Palestine out now. Thank you so much for being with us again on the Electronic Intifada podcast. It's always wonderful to see you and speak with you. Thank you, Nora. This was amazing. that's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks to Sharif Zakut, our music maker and production assistant. For news, information, cultural features and reviews and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net, where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, support the Electronic Intifada by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening. 